Welcome to Awaken to Sleep Education. Uh, the question is, do you treat tongue tie? Uh, and just kind of tagging into that for those, for those who are kind of newer, what does that mean? And uh, any information about its efficacy that you can share? Sure. It's, uh, I'm glad somebody asked that question. It's a very hot topic. And obviously, there is so many different, there's a wide range of opinions about when it comes to tongue tie. Generally speaking, tongue tie is referred to the patients that their lingual frenum is limiting the mobility of their tongue and therefore ability of their tongue to act as a uh, pharyngeal dilator muscle. The genoglossus muscle is not going to be able to move to open up the airway. And uh, it does impact their chewing. It does impact their function. It can actually impact their craniofacial development. We know that in children, it has a huge impact. It does impact their speech in some of these uh, patients. So it's a very, very big problem and it's very underdiagnosed. Do we treat tongue ties? That's a very general question. Yes, it goes back to uh, the treatment planning. It is one of the parts of our treatment planning. In our data collection, looking at soft tissue mobility, such as, again, tongue tie and issues like that, or different type of uh, soft tissue problems, anything that is there that is part of our treatment planning and part of our treatment plan in general to be addressed. Whether or not it's going to get rid of the sleep apnea, that is a different story. Is it a treatment plan to completely treat a sleep apnea? In some cases, it can in general, case selection becomes important. And what I wanna kind of get across as it comes with tongue tie, I was actually just having a discussion with an orthodontist yesterday about this. There are some papers that are unfortunately coming out and they're showing when you release the tongue tie, if it's not done properly in conjunction with myofunctional therapy, that means that retraining the tongue to know what to do with this increased ability of mobility that they're getting is can make their sleep apnea even worse. So tongue tie is, an important part of our treatment planning, when to and how to release the tongue tie that requires its own kind of a approach and being there. But it's a very, very important thing. Every patient that you see in your clinic, if you're thinking about dental devices, you should focus on the tongue tie, of course. Awesome. Yeah. Um, I'm not a doctor, but I can tell you, I had a surgery, a tonsillectomy actually, not tongue tie, but tonsillectomy several years ago. And it completely treated my apnea. And then I got older. I actually got married, gained 20 pounds, all that deal. But looking at this, my apnea came back. I'm now an appliance user again for the last six weeks. Yeah. Um, so even with tongue tie, I imagine you got that same treatment of the apnea entirely probably is temporary based on other life conditions. Yeah. And, so. and remember, everybody has a different physiology and everybody has a different anatomy as well. And our job is not to just be focused on one thing. The idea is not just to treat their sleep apnea either. What we're trying to do is at the end of the day is improve their quality of life. If we're just getting rid of their sleep apnea, but they still have a tongue tie and they're having headaches and they're having all these myofascial pains, it is our responsibility to address that as well. Once you start looking at their craniofacial complex, you need to assess the whole thing before you put that full treatment plan together. Maybe oral appliance therapy is not the best option. Maybe a surgical treatment in combination with an orthodontic treatment is the best option for a certain patient. Maybe it's best for them to be on the CPAP. And that's what I mean by treatment planning. Don't be eager to make appliances. Be eager to manage and treat a sleep disorder breathing. That's very, very important. And once you look at it that way, 
everything is just going to go into place. Everything is just going to fall into place for you. Yeah, that, that perspective is awesome. Uh, we have another question. And since we're talking about the craniofacial structure and evaluating the um, treatment plan, uh, when does a mandibular advancement device, um, when, sorry, when you do a mandibular advancement device, do you end up creating other problems? Hmm. Well, what, <laughs> I wish I could ask them, what do they mean by other problems, right? Any treatment, if we're talking about side effects, yes, any treatment that we do in medicine has side effects, right? The question always comes down in terms of risk versus benefits analysis. And what is it that we're accomplishing? And again, I'm gonna go back to that treatment planning and case selection of understanding what is the patient's objectives. Yeah, I can go into talking about teeth movement and bite changes and all that. And to be honest, those historical side effects, they tend to be less and less as we see with the new precision devices because of the digital workflow and everything else. But yeah, we can, we definitely can cause other uh, adverse effects that are not uh, favorable, that are not good. That, that's called side effect. Every treatment has side effects. But the question becomes, is creating those side effects uh, justified? Are they benefiting from the treatment enough to create, which makes us actually has to be a better clinician. So you better be sure that your device, it's working to the best level. You better be sure the device that you're using, it's going to provide the best outcome. And you better be sure you work with the right people and you provide the right treatment because it can cause side effects. Is it something that we see it regularly in our clinic? This is just my point of view. No, we don't. I don't remember the last time that I actually had to stop treatment for a patient of mine because of the severity of the side effects. Do we see teeth movement and bite changes? Yes, we do. How often? Probably less than 5%, but I hope that answered the question. Yeah, I think, I think so. I mean, I'll say this too. We have studies on side effects, some of which from certain companies that provide precision uh, appliances. So if you have questions on that, we're happy to connect and, and answer what you have for that. Um, let's say a patient has been diagnosed with mild obstructive sleep apnea. They have an oral appliance made and their next test is normal. This patient still wakes up tired. Why might that be? Do some appliances cause, mm. that's another question. We'll get to part two of that. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, that, that, that's a big question. Uh, I'm going to sound like a broken record again, diagnosis, treatment planning, right? What was patient's objectives to begin with, right? Tiredness. There is a thousand reason for a patient to be tired. What is their uh, blood work look like? What is their medical condition look like? Are they on any other different medication? Are they taking any uh, anti-anxiety or antidepressants? Do they have any sort of uh, psychiatric issues that needs to be addressed as well? So there are many reasons for tiredness. Tiredness is one of those things that is very complex in treating with a sleep app, with uh, dental devices. If you remember, initially I was talking about simple intermediate complex cases. The moment my patient's chief concern is tiredness, automatically they become an intermediate or complex case. They're not simple anymore. Do they get the proper number of hours of sleep? Do they have proper sleep hygiene? Do they exercise? What is their diet like? What is their inflammatory status of their body is? How well do they take care of themselves? One of the things I would say is, uh, in cases like that, it's always best to work just like anything else in a multidisciplinary team. 
and being able to look at their overall health and total health in general as well, looking at their blood work, doing a full blood panel, understanding, is it vitamin D deficiency? There's so many things that could be causing tiredness for sure. Uh, there are even studies that sometimes, even if their AHI is better, that doesn't mean that their um, respiration is probably still good. That doesn't mean that they're getting the proper sleep architecture. They could still be having inspiratory flow limitation uh, in simple terms, that's high upper airway resistance syndrome. Those are the limitations of the level three sleep testing. So there could be many reasons for them to still be tired for sure. We've got some really good questions still. Um, please feel free to hang around while we, while we go through those. Adarsh, do you want to add anything before we get into our questions again? No, no, that was, that was wonderful. And I'm glad you brought that up. And uh, what I like about what you guys do, as I said, is that comprehensive approach to it. It's not just about the clinical side of it. It is going through how to implement it. It is going through how to create the right team. It is going through how to have the proper connections in terms of even the medical blink. And I know you and I were talking earlier, you said, you know, you wish that more people focused on the creating value for the first few cases, as opposed to figuring out how to get paid for it. And I couldn't agree more with you. Once you learn, once you get that why right, everything else falls into place. And uh, no, it's, and I would encourage anybody that's on the call, if you're thinking about getting involved in dental sleep medicine, start in the right direction, start with the right course. And I know I've heard great things about what you guys do, of course. Thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah. Well, let's, let's jump back into some questions here. So um, that, that first question we asked about the tiredness, um, and this is kind of, we covered this a little earlier, so we can probably be brief about it, but do some appliances cause different side effects that might be the reason why patient is waking up tired? Uh, that's a very good question. Do some appliances cause more side effects? Um, I like to kind of refer to um, literature on that one. Unfortunately, we don't have enough literature on that one. But what we do know and what we do see clinically is as we're moving toward more, more precision devices, we're not seeing those side effects as much clinically. And I want to put a disclaimer there. Obviously, there needs to be more research. Obviously, there needs to be more data on that one. But personally, when I look at the devices that I used to use 15 years ago versus what I use now, there is a big difference. And there is a big difference why there would be different side effects. Do we see a, a big difference in the efficacy of the treatment? As I said, we've seen a 26% gap between 55% of old literature and 81% of modern literature. So the answer would be, is every appliance the same? That I can tell you, in my opinion, it's not. Not every device is exactly the same. And you have to figure out which one it is that works best for you, for sure. Um, if I can just add to that, just from working with dentists, the dentists that are most confident in their appliances are the ones that have tried them. Yeah. So um, let us know if you want help with that, but try them out. Try the ones that you're looking at and, and see how they feel in your mouth best testimony to treatment you'll find. Yeah. And, and go beyond just moving teeth and side effects and all that. Look at every aspect of the device. How is it manufactured? What is the material that is used? What is the ease of, the ease of use? How compatible is it with digital workflow? I'm a big fan of digital workflow. Everybody knows that. And if I can tell you one thing, if you're getting into sleep, get in there digitally because it's not just a matter of convenience. It's better treatment. We know that. So you got to look at everything when you look at these devices, for sure. Cool. Yeah. Uh, we got, we got a, a question from our friendship over in Atlanta or in Georgia. 
Um, if you referred a patient for airway treatment, but they have significant need for dental treatment, do you refer for a CPAP until dental is complete? Or how do you incorporate appliances throughout dental therapies? I love that question because that's the reality of dental sleep medicine for a general dentist. What do you do? You know, And the answer would be uh, definitely, definitely CPAP is always on the table. Always, 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 always. Uh, assessing the medical risk. What is the level of a sleep apnea? That becomes very important. And what is their chief concern again? Whether let's say, whether they have an AHI of four or five and their chief concern is a snoring, then maybe we'll tell them, well, we can get through the dental treatment first, leave them kind of observed method instead of putting them on a CPAP or even looking at more uh, uh, non-invasive treatment options such as laser therapy, night lays. We do that in our clinic as well. Any kind of modality that would help them, even lifestyle modification. But the bottom line is definitely, definitely dental treatment comes first because you got to look at this as a chronic lifetime management. If the teeth are not healthy, the device is not going to fit. One of the other things that we've done sometimes is making them devices that do have a liner perhaps. And as we're going through the treatment, we can reline the device. Or if it's just a simple number of uh, devices, we can actually adjust as we go forward. So again, backing to that personalized treatment, the idea would be we want to manage the sleep apnea as soon as possible, regardless of the modality, whether it's going to be CPAP, whether it's going to be something else that manages it throughout the time, finish the dental treatment as fast as you can. And that's one of the things I love about having it in our general practice, because it motivates patients actually to go ahead with their general dental treatment as fast as possible so they can actually start wearing their device. We do so many even ortho cases just for the patient to be able to wear a more comfortable device. And as soon as you go over that whole thing, they're like, well, if you're going to make me a device, should I make my teeth straight first? Then obviously the same question that it was just asked where chip comes up, then what do I do in the meantime, right? There are some devices that you can wear over your clear aligners. Uh, to be honest with you, I haven't had great success with them personally, but I know some of my colleagues that they do great work. The bottom line is remember CPAP is always a good option while you're doing the dental treatment. Yeah, uh, and I will say, I mean, Throughout to one of our sponsors, um, Better Night is is one of our CPAP partners, and they have a CPAP compliance of over seventy percent. That's amazing. Um, yeah, it's actually so. Schedule called us. We can chat with you about details of that. They've got some really cool pieces to their um, well, how they help patients with that. So, um, I, I actually, I'm sorry, Simi, I have been saving this question from the beginning. I do have a couple more after that, but it's a really big question, and I think. I don't know that we can get to all the details in this call, but uh, how do you screen for <laughs> sleep apnea? <laughs> well, how do I not, right? Uh, I would say it really depends on your practice. There is always the questionnaires. There is always validated questionnaires that you can use to create a very systematic approach. Uh, stop bank questionnaire. You can use Epworth as in terms of for tiredness. It's not really a questionnaire for sleep apnea. Uh, Berlin questionnaires. There are many questionnaires that you can use that could be part of your medical history. The other side of it is our hygiene program. Our hygiene is huge in screening patients for sleep apnea from signs and symptoms, from grinding, bruxism, abfractions, scalloping of the tongue, high malampati scores, soft tissue signs and symptoms, and all that. Three is chart reviews. 
For us, chart reviews are huge in general dental practice. Every patient that comes into our clinic two weeks prior to uh, coming into for their clinic, our assistants or hygienists or team members are looking at their chart or looking at their medical history. And once you look at the medical history, the moment you see diabetes, high blood pressure, male over 50, to me, that's a red flag for a sleep apnea. So I would say a combination and just keeping up the dialogue, making sure your patients know how sleep matters and how does it relate to dentistry. But I'm sure you have a lot to add to that chat as well. That's what you guys do. Yeah, I mean, you kind of hit it on it all. Um, the biggest thing I'll say, though, is is just to add to that, because you had all these pieces, there's basically the cornerstones of screening. Um, you have to make sure that your team can talk about it. Your team can connect with your patient about it. And the most important thing is that your patients don't feel like you're trying to fix them. So you have to be addressing the problem and not fixing the patient. Mm -hmm. We know that we're trying to fix the patient's airway, but no one wants to be saved. So that's one, that's probably one of the biggest constant sections on our two day course. We talk to the team. So your hygienists don't hate you when you add something else to their schedule. Um, we talk about verbiage, how to keep it short and sweet and how to get patients to test, because that is the bottom line. If you know they have a problem, they have to do a test to qualify that problem and also start this process that Trash is talking about the treatment planning process. No, I love that. I love the way you said it. It's, it's not about fixing the patients at all. It's about making sure the patients know there is a problem and making sure they understand what that problem is and then just leave it at that. And what our role at that point is going to be is if the patient wants a solution for their problem, then we're there to provide that solution. And that's when everything else falls into place. Otherwise, if your job is to go in there, your intention is to fix them, it's going to be very hard, very, very tough. But I love what you said. I, nobody likes to be saved. Let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah. they don't. Um, yeah, there's like, so that, that's like, we call it our hero positioning curriculum. It is an entire outline that we go through with your team on that course about that topic. So, yeah. Uh, one quick question I'm going to take is someone asked earlier, will there be a recording? Um, yes, guys, there is a recording that will be sent to you in the email today. Um, and also it'll be posted on our website tomorrow or actually later tonight. If you check in about two hours, it'll be there. Um, I had a really interesting question. I don't know if you have an answer, um, but what, what range of that upper airway collapse, you showed that diagram that they're using the endoscopy, um, endoscopy for, what range or what part of the collapse pattern are typically responders to appliance therapy? So the ones that don't respond to oral appliance therapy are the ones that tends to be concentric collapses and the collapses that are in the velopharyngeal level. So okay. those are the tough ones. Uh, the oropharyngeal anterior posteriors, those seem to respond really well. And that's one of the things that is used DICE for uh, treatment response prediction and what we call the phenotyping of the patients. Cool. All right. That was a, I'm glad it was succinct. I didn't know if it was that easy to answer. So yeah. um, last question I've got, unless there's any more questions from the, the audience tonight was, um, do you have any verbiage to assist in determining what success looks like for patients in treatment? Hmm. That's, that's a very good question. Um, I, I, I'm going to go back to my slide about, again, treatment planning is understanding what was the patient's objective of treatment, not what my objective of treatment was. If I can address my patient's chief concern 
that is success. If I can provide what my patient asked for, at least improve it. I'm, I, you don't look for, for me, success doesn't come with perfection. Success comes with my patients feeling and knowing that they've been heard and their concern has been addressed. I don't know if that answers the question or not. At the end of the day, it's all about the patient. My job is to make sure medically they're well taken care of as well. And they're definitely treated. If I'm going to put a device in there, I better make sure their AHI is going to meet the criteria that we're looking for. But the most important thing is my patients leaving the clinic happy, living a healthier life, uh, having a better quality of life on a day-to-day -day basis and having a bigger smile on their face. Yeah, that's awesome. Oh, we did have one more uh, question pop up. You said that you were getting less side effects and fewer kinds of other issues because using a digital workflow isn't all dependent on the George Gage record primarily. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I, uh, what I do know is I, I kind of call it, a, it's like a success. Digital workflow is all or none, right? Obviously, byte registration is a very important part of the process. Uh, I don't think it's the most important part of it, perhaps. That's just my own gut feel. I think there is a lot more that goes into it. I think every part of it should be consistent. You're only as good as your weakest link. Obviously, if you're getting a, a, a non-bad bad bite, I'm putting quote unquote, whatever that means, you're probably going to have more side effects, right? But if you're getting a perfect bite, but you're having a very poor manufacturing and very poor processing, that could easily, easily negate your bite registration. Let me put it in perspective for you. There are some studies that we've looked at in terms of the bite that gets sent to a dental lab versus what comes out of a dental lab. And you'll be surprised that in some of the devices that got back, there was overall more than five to six millimeters of what we call global variants. That means that they were five to six millimeters away from where you took your bite. So going back to what the question was, doesn't matter how good of a bite you take, if that bite doesn't get transferred in your final product, uh, that bite is not playing any role. But if you have a bad bite to begin with, then you're doomed. So, yeah, that's a that study is a really cool study. Um, yeah. Also, kind of terrifying sometimes. But um, we did have another question: um, How do you tell if a patient needs more than eighty percent titration or protrusion <laughs> for your complex patients? You're I getting know. all the I, clinical ones now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's that is. Uh, thank you for uh, bringing that question up. The slide that I had is from the times that we had the matrix at that point, knowing exactly in advance where the titration needed to be. There are ways, of course, for patients when we do dice, we can determine in a point the level of the titration, but there is no easy way of knowing that without any sort of a theranostic data. So uh, I think it was Dr. Kratz that asked that question. Very good yeah. question. I should edit that slide for sure. Um, and I think, and actually this is, I was going to ask you after, but since we're talking about it, you had mentioned uh, the matrix unit, for those that don't know, was a very cool piece of technology um, that did manual or um, remote titration for patients while asleep, while testing them and evaluated the ODI to see efficacy is really cool. Um, and you had mentioned this earlier, AHI and RDI versus, you know, ODI and various um, indicators for success. 
Um, so we'll, we'll have to connect. I'd love to see if we have any studies. We might have some in our position uh, yeah. library too, but studies on those numbers. Cause I know at the AADSM this year, that was a big topic, AHI yeah. and it's relevance to treatment. So. And we're moving a lot more towards oxygen based parameters, such as, uh, as I said, hypoxic burden is going to be really important. Uh, time below 90%. There, all that is stuff that is going to be really, really important to look at. Cool. Well, um, I think that's all the questions for tonight, guys. So we're going to wrap up this meeting. Your CE links are in the chat. If you missed it, it will be emailed to you with the recording, with the information about our upcoming course. And remember, guys, the, the big thing here is focus your perspective on helping people, mm -hmm. not on providing appliance therapy. If your focus is there, that's going to be where the results come from. Uh, you said it really well. And uh, the time is always right to do what is right. You know, just to start it. And if we can be any help and part of your journey, by all means, thanks for the invitation, Chad. It was a pleasure for sure. Awesome. Alrighty, everyone. Thank you guys. Have a wonderful evening. Thank you, Dr. Shresh. Thank you all. Have a good evening. Thank you for joining us on this webinar. If you'd like more information on dental sleep medicine education, coaching, or home sleep testing services, please feel free to reach out to us at awakenasleep.com forward slash edu or at info at awaken2sleep.com. Thank you and have a great day.